Go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Peter. Uh, we've wrapped up the Beatitudes last time we were together. And I uh, want to jump into a, a, a brief study here, not the whole book, but uh, spend several weeks really just on the subject of how to go about getting your sanctification unstuck. I know a lot of times uh, it can feel as you're living your Christian life and going about your daily business like you're just kind of stuck. You're not making the kind of progress that you want to be making. And I think that whether or not you're stuck as in not moving at all or stuck as in not moving as fast as you would like to be, that sense of wanting to grow in grace and make more progress faster is a feeling that I would say all of us are most likely very familiar with. We, we want to be able to grow to be more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as fast as we possibly can. And there's a reason that it's called progressive sanctification, right? Because we're not where we need to be and we won't be there until the day comes when we stand before the Lord and see him face to face. And in the meantime, we are progressing. And yet there are certain days where things seem to be progressing much, much slower than we would like to see them progressing as we struggle with the casting off of our flesh and the putting on of Christ. And so I want us to spend some time, just several weeks here in the book of Second Peter chapter 1, because he does just a phenomenal job of explaining to us exactly how to get your sanctification unstuck. I know unstuck is not the most theologically adept term that could be used, but it's the one that I think communicates the idea best for us, okay? Several months ago, I was uh, checking out one of our extension campuses at the seminary that we have in Washington, D.C., and just trying to iron out some wrinkles and get some things worked out out there, and I had some extra time one night. And I was driving around town, just kind of looking at all the big monuments that exist there. I mean, it really is an impressive city. If you've never been to Washington, D.C., it's one place that you want to put on your bucket list to just go see, because it's an amazing place. As I drove past the Washington Monument, something caught my eye, and I had to ask Siri what was going on, because I I saw that the Washington Monument, about 20% of the way up the tower, it changes color. Now, I don't know if you've seen that before, if you've ever looked at a picture of the Washington Monument. You can see it right there in pictures, but the colors change about 20% of the way up. And I had to ask Siri, why is the Washington Monument two-tone? I mean, what kind of a designer thought that that was a good idea? And as I dug into it, got back to my hotel and was researching it and trying to figure out, there really is an amazing story about why the Washington Monument is two different colors. The reason why is because, and I know you're all asking, well, tell us, why is it a different color? I won't leave you hanging. It's because construction started in the year 1848, and they worked on it for six years, and then it ran out of money in 1854. And so, like the government did in those days, when they had no more money, guess what they did? They kept building. No, they didn't. (laughs) They stopped building, because that's the way a government should run. Take note, this is not a political speech, but there's a lesson in that somewhere. I'll leave it at that. So the Washington Monument proceeded to sit there unfinished like a giant stub of marble sticking up out of the National Mall for 23 years. Just sat, completely unfinished. And about 20 years into the kind of uh, break that they took on its construction. There's actually pictures there from the 1870s, 1880s, where it's just sitting there unfinished. 
they got back around to saying, you know, we really probably ought to finish that. But now that it sat there for 20 years, maybe we should change the design of it. And maybe we should figure out what it actually should look like now that we've started it and let it sat there in the middle of the ground for 20 years. And so they kind of ran a design competition. And there were many people who said, don't spend the money, just cap it off where it's at. Now, I, for one, am so glad that they did not do that because it would have been the ugliest structure on the face of the planet if they had just capped it off where it sat. But they went ahead and resumed it after 23 years of sitting there. And the reason it's separate colors is because by the time they got back around to it, the marble quarry that they used the first time around was out of marble. And so they had to go find a different marble quarry. And as you know, marble from different sources is not the same color. If you've ever tried to mix and match your countertops in your kitchen or bathroom, it doesn't work that way. So it's finished now, but it's imperfect. For 23 years, it sat there just stuck. And you can see the difference to this day. And I think so oftentimes, the reason I tell you that story, you're saying, why are we talking about the Washington Monument, its two-tone nature, and the nature of governmental economics? The reason why is that sanctification can very oftentimes feel like the Washington Monument during that period of time where it's just stuck where you look at your life and you look at what is supposed to be a monument to the grace of God and you say, it's obviously half finished. I mean, I can see the fact that, that God has done a work in me. He has begun to change me by his grace into who he wants me to be. I, I know that I am not now who I once was. That work has started, but now it is stuck. And it's like there's this stub of a monument sticking up out of the turf of your life and you're saying to yourself, aren't we going to get around to finishing this someday? Can't we get back to work and get this thing done? And so oftentimes there's a sense of frustration that we experience because stuff is half finished and there's seemingly little progress and we're saying we don't want our lives to be monuments to a half finished work. We want it to be done. And that's the reason that the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 6, that he believes that faithful is he who will complete the work that he has begun. So the question that we have is when we're feeling like that, where either there's nothing happening or it's just moving so much slower than we want to, how do we grow? How do we get unstuck in our spiritual walk? And, and what does progressive sanctification mean when it doesn't feel like I'm progressing? Well, that's where the Apostle Peter steps in here in his second book to us, and he really begins to talk about it right off the bat. And I'll back up to verse 1 because it really gets us a running start. He just says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And then right out the chute, he kind of gives us the, the beating heartbeat, the pulse, if you will, of exactly what should characterize every single believer. And this is his prayer for these people and for us, and it really should be our prayer for ourselves as well. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. When your spiritual pulse begins to quicken, Verse 2 is what it looks like. You see, the true believer desires grace, the gift of eternal blessing of relationship with God, the reception of something that you do not deserve. The true believer desires peace, the reconciliation that exists with God because of his grace. 
The true believer desires true knowledge of Christ, which is the gift of relationship that each one of us are given. And the true believer, the key word there in verse 2 is that word multiplied. The true believer desires that all of these things, true knowledge, grace, and peace, would be being multiplied exponentially. That word is most often used in Scripture in the book of Acts where it talks about the exponential growth of the early church where their numbers were being added to daily and there was this multiplication effect where one becomes two and two becomes four and four becomes eight and I should stop before my math skills run out. But that's the point. It's the idea of a compound interest that takes place where there's a rich, vibrant, flush account with God. He says, grace and peace be multiplied, exponentially increasing to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In short, the true believer desires profound, vital relationship to God. And as Peter says here, both the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. That's what it's supposed to look like. And yet we, we look at that and then we look at our lives and we say, is it possible for that kind of exponential multiplication to be taking place? Well, look down at verse 10 towards the end of the passage that we'll be looking at over the next couple of weeks. And I just want to give you a preview to encourage you that the stuff we're talking about is not pie in the sky made up fiction. It is possible. He says in verse 10, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Look at that promise. You will never stumble and you will walk right into heaven. God's presence. Whoa. Okay. So we've seen the way it should be, verse 2. We've seen the fact that it can happen, verse 10. The question then becomes, what's in the middle? That's the secret sauce that I really would like personally in my own walk, right? And I think all of us would as well. How does this happen? And that's the question that's before us. Well, the New Testament gives us the equation all over, and Pastor John talked about it this morning. Kill your sin, put on Christ. He ended his message in Romans 13. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we know that equation, right? We know all about the need to be putting off the old men, mortifying our flesh, killing it, and putting on the Spirit, clothing ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. And two halves of the same equation. And so oftentimes in, in preaching, in books, in our devotions, in our time, in our energy, we spend all of our focus and attention on the killing sin part. Right? We, we all hear about that routinely and regularly. We all think about it routinely and regularly because it is what besets us all the time. So we often talk about the need to be killing sin or it will be killing you, but we don't usually spend quite as much time talking about what it looks like to put on Christ and to be growing in the knowledge of him. What does it mean to be renewing the inner man? And it's that half of sanctification, the putting on of the Spirit, the assumption of the mind of Christ, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that Peter focuses on here in this text. So, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about what it means to be putting on Christ. We're not going to be spending a lot of time about what it means to be putting off sin. 
That's not to say that that's not important or an equivalent half of sanctification. It's just not the half that we're focused on here in this text together because this is a half that we need to spend some time thinking about because it's so often overlooked. And so that's what we're going to look at here together. To renew the inner man. And Peter is essentially going to give us two parts of this idea, renewing the inner man. He's going to give us two different pieces that we, we have to have in order to understand what it means to put on Christ. And, and the first part is essentially what God does. And that's the part that you need to grasp. And the second part is that this is what you are now to go do. So there's one part that God does, and you need to understand and grasp that. Then there's another part that you're responsible to go out and actually take action on, and that's the part that we're supposed to do. And and Peter focuses in that order in this text. First, he spends the first several verses that we're going to actually dive into together here today focusing on what God does in allowing you to renew yourself in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then next week, we'll go back into here's what we are now to do in light of that, okay? So today, I want us to think about really the topic of what God does in progressing our sanctification, in enabling our sanctification, and that's really found there in verses 3 through 4. Let me read them for us seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust." Now, let me just keep going. I'll just read the whole text for us. That way we kind of know where we're going even next time. Now, for this very reason, he says, verse 5, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, make all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. And here it is. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Amazing promises there. And Peter really gives us the pathway here, and I want for us to unwind this together. And, and today what we have to focus on really is that first part in verses 3 and 4, where Peter tells us that in order for your sanctification to progress, you must first recognize God's role in your growth. You are fully dependent upon Him. And, and Peter's going to give us here four different aspects of God's role in our spiritual growth. And we'll see how far through these we get. Four aspects of God's role in our spiritual growth. First, in order to grow, you must recognize God's power. And we see that right off the bat, seeing that His divine power right? The power part is the part that we're all looking for in our sanctification. And yet there are two words that come before it that tell us whose power it actually is. Is it your power to make yourself more holy or to do better or simply make better choices? No. 
It is divine power, and it's not just divine power that now belongs to you. It is his divine power, right? So you have to look at that whole statement there. It is his divine power. So in order to grow, to grow, it begins by recognizing the source of your power. So let's look at this power here just a little bit and what it means. The first thing we see about this power is that God's power is the source. And so when we're tempted to say, I'm stuck, I can't get anywhere, well, you're focused on the wrong spot. You need to go back to the foundation and say, it's his power to begin with. And the grammar that's used here in the verse, when it's talking about the power, his power, you say, well, who is the his here in this verse? Well, the, the natural kind of precedent there, the antecedent, would be Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the power of Christ himself. The power of Christ that was so evident in his calming of the storm, the feeding of the 5,000, the raising of the dead, the tearing of the veil, that is the power that is now being funneled down towards the end of your sanctification. Where God is saying, where, where we're being told here by Peter that it is the power of Christ himself that is now going to come behind us and enable our efforts towards becoming more like Christ. Now, this is not a a wimpy human power. This is not a a 220-volt kind of power, right? This is an infinite gushing power, and that's the important part of what it means there, that it is divine power, where God himself is the fountainhead behind it. His power now becomes your power. And everything about your sanctification finds its source not in your own capacity to do right, but in his power that enables you to do right. Without him, you're stuck. With him, there's this throbbing, constant, powerful source that undergirds not only your efforts, but your progress as well. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that now works mightily within us. Right? That is the power that enables us to grow. So God's power is the source. God's power is also a gift. Look at what he says there. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us. Skip down to the end of verse 3. He says, it is his divine power which has called us. Right? It's not something that we deserved. It's something that has been given to us or granted to us. It's, it, the word that he uses there is, is not just a gift. It, it's more than that. It's a different word from gift. It, it has the sense of bestowing a legal right to someone. You've all heard of a, a grant deed, right? Where you're given a deed, a, the title to a piece of property. It's something that is bestowed upon you, and once it has been granted to you, it cannot be legally revoked from you. You now have all the rights associated with it. As we go through this verse here, we see that, that this power that has been granted to us The statement that he makes here, it's in the past tense. It has been granted to us. The point there is that it's already been done. And the results of that action continue to bombard you even now. You see, you didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything to earn it. He has granted it to you with all the attendant rights and privileges that come with it, and it cannot be taken away from you. So, 
when we think to ourselves, I'm stuck and I can't make any progress, you need to go back and remind yourself what the power source is behind your sanctification because that power is already there and available to you. So if you can't see it or sense it and you don't feel that wind in your sails, the question becomes not what's wrong with God and His power source. The question becomes, what are you doing to cut yourself off from it? Because it is there and it has been granted to you. He goes on and he talks to us more about this power. Not only is it the source and is it a gift that's been granted to us, it's also available even now. Look at the second half of verse 3. He says, through the true knowledge of him. This is the amazing part, that through the source of God's power for life and godliness, it's, it's made available to us through the knowledge of Christ. And that word for knowledge that he uses there, it, it's, it's not just, well, I know something about it. It's a word for knowledge that means a full, a deep, a thorough or complete awareness of something. It's, it's a rich, full awareness. It's like the encyclopedia compared with a memo. Right? That's the kind of knowledge that he's talking about here. He's saying your knowledge of Christ is rooted in your awareness of Christ. The more clearly you see Jesus, the greater power you will have in your spiritual life because he is the force that not only mandates, but then also enables change within you. And this is the reason why you show me someone who is growing and I'll show you someone who sees Christ clearly. You show me someone who is stuck and I'll show you someone who is failing to look to Christ in the right and sufficient way. Because vision of Christ and sanctification equals power in the process. And the, the reason for the emphasis on sight is given to us in verse 9. He says, He who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. Why? Because if you're not progressing, it means you're blind. It means you're not looking at the person of Christ in order to find the power that you need to grow because that power is available in Him. We go on. In verse 3, we find out that God's power is also guaranteed to us here. He says, This power is available through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. What's he saying there? That word by tells us that, that it's the glory and excellence that is the agency by which he called us and gave us this grant. It is his own glory and virtuous perfection. You see, there's nothing that is more central to the nature of God than his glory and his holiness, right? I mean, the very first thing when you step into heaven that you're going to hear are angels screaming at the top of their lungs, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor, glory, dominion, and power. And why is that such a big deal in heaven? Why are those the things that they're talking about when we get into heaven? It's because those are the things about God that he used and leveraged to save and perfect us to the place where we are now able to enter in there. You see, glory and perfection, glory and excellence... These are the essential pieces that he leverages to grant you the power to grow in his grace and peace. They are essential characteristics of who he is. They are guaranteed essential pieces of who he is. And we know that they will not change. And if our sanctification is tied to his glory and his perfection, then our sanctification is guaranteed to be progressing as well. 
See, the bottom line is that when God stops being glorious, you'll be allowed that then to say that you have no spiritual power. When God stops being holy and perfect and excellent, you'll be justified in claiming that you can no longer grow. But as long as he is either of those things, the spiritual wind in your sails blows with one never-ending continual gust. The power is there. As long as God is on his throne and as long as he has glory and perfection, the power is there because he is who he is. So why are we talking about all this? The reason why is because it's the power of God available to you that enables you to make any progress at all. The very foundation of your ability to grow is not in your own efforts. Rather, it has to be grounded squarely and completely in your reliance upon the power of God now at work in you. It's a power that is an available gift guaranteed to those who have been called according to his purpose. And it's that power that enables Paul to say in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that, folks, is an incredible kind of comfort to us when we feel stuck. Because we're not. The power of God is there, and it will do its job until we have been perfected. All we must do, as we're told here in this passage, is to look back to Jesus, the one who is the author, the one who is the perfecter, of our faith. You say, well, I need more than just a general awareness that God is powerful in order to progress. How does that power work? What does that power provide? And this is the second thing that we must recognize. So in order to grow, you must recognize God's power. And here, Peter's going to tell us that in order to grow, you must also recognize God's provision. God's provision. Because what does the passage tell us that God uses his power to do? Well, it's right there in the middle of verse 3. He says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us what? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, the emphasis in this verse, grammatically, is on this word, everything. Right? It's almost as though in the text, when you look at it, that word kind of pops up and stands out above all the rest. Where, where he has granted his divine power, has granted to us, pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and excellence, he has done all those things to give us everything. There's kind of this punctuation mark or this underline underneath it. And that is an astounding promise. In order to grow, you see, you have to recognize not just God's power, but the fact that he uses his power to provide you with something. And what does that mean? What is everything. Well, we kind of have to trace this through chapter 1 here. What, is, what does it mean that he gives us everything? Because we could look at that and say, well, I don't have all the money that I could use, and if I could just get more money, everything would be great, right? It's not talking about money. It's not talking about resources. It's not talking even about smarts or talent or ability. That's not what it's talking about. So what is it talking about? What, what is the everything that we need in order to grow? Well, we have to kind of track that through here with this text. Peter, if you skip down to verse 12, he says, therefore, and so he ties everything that's about to come in the back half of chapter 1 with that word therefore back up to the first half of chapter 1. He says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things so that you'll be established in the truth. 
in verse 15, he says, and I will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. And then in verse 16, he, it looks like he abruptly transitions and skips to a different topic altogether, but that's not what he's doing. He says, in light of the fact that you need to grow and God's given you everything, therefore I want to remind you of this. And then he says this in verse 16. Four, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power, there's our word, and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ through whom is our ability to grow. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And Peter continues on then, and he says, yeah, but even the fact that we were eyewitnesses, that isn't just what you need. If, if it's the knowledge of Christ that enables you to grow spiritually and find the power of God to grow, Peter says, I should be able to grow more than anybody else because I actually saw his glory myself. For I was there, verse 17, when he received honor and glory from the Father. And when God said, this is my, be my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven itself when we were with him on the holy mountain. But look at what he says in verse 19. And this is the everything he's talking about right here in verse 19. He says, so, despite the fact that I saw Christ transfigured into his glory before my very eyes, we have the prophetic word made more sure. And that is the lamp that shines in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What is the everything that you need in order to grow spiritually? What is it that the power of God has provided? It is an awareness of the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Word of God. You see, it is this book that gives you everything that you need for life and godliness. This is the key right here because it's in the pages of this book that you find the revelation of Jesus Christ who is the one back in verse 3 who called us by His own glory and excellence. And we're able to grow and access this power through the true knowledge of Him and Him alone. Where do we find Him? We find Him right here. This is the everything that we need. So, His provision is abundant for us, and it is clear to us. In the pages of Scripture, you literally have a voice from heaven that is speaking into your life, giving you an awareness of the Savior who in turn then provides you with direction and guidance and strength. And that is everything, he says, that you need for life and godliness. Life there is talking about the living of your life as is bound upon the earth before the holy gaze of God. The godliness that he's talking about is the relationship to God that is not bound by your life upon this earth. So everything about your horizontal life before the watching world is governed by this book and what it tells you about the person of Christ. Everything about your vertical relationship to God that you need to know to have an excellent relationship to Him is also found in the pages of this book, whereby we see the person of Christ. The impact of that statement, and I don't want this to be lost on us, that His divine power has provided us with everything we need for life and godliness, is that we now have no excuse. 
You see, when the power of God's provision is behind you and available for you to know in the pages of His Word, there's no reason to continue living like you never met Him at all. You say, well, I just can't. I'm stuck. You can if you know Him because He has already provided in the person of Christ and He's given you a manual to show you the person of Christ. That's even more reliable, Peter says, than my own vision of Him on that mountain. It's not as though He might give you what you need. It's not as though he could give you what you need, but won't. That would make him most cruel. He already has, and you're holding it in your hands. So when you're growing in your knowledge of Christ, his power provides you with the necessary sufficiency to do right and the direction to know right. And that's an amazing promise, that God has given us not just his power, but he's also given us his provision as well so that we can know how to grow. But it's not just even about knowing Christ because what we see when we look at the person of Christ is all the promises fulfilled in him that God has given to us. God's role in sanctification goes beyond, far beyond just the provision of knowledge and it gets real really, really fast because that's what he tells us in verse 4. The third thing that we need to be aware of as we're talking about God's role in our sanctification is that in order to grow, You must not only recognize God's power and His provision, but you must also recognize His promises. And this is where the meaning of what it it means to know Christ gets really real, because in Him, God fulfills His promises. Verse 4, For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by those promises you may become something that you are not now right? So we go on here beyond just the provision and we see the promises that God is going to fulfill as well. Well, we have to ask ourselves, what are these promises? What's the nature of them? Well, frankly, it's every single thing that God has ever promised in his word. His words are his promises. This book is filled with promises from God. And our pastor, if you go back into his commentary, has done a really helpful job categorizing those promises for us. And we could spend probably a whole sermon on every single one of these, but we don't have time for that right now. Okay? They are the fact that God is giving us spiritual life promised in Romans 8 9. He is giving us resurrection life to come someday in the future, John eleven twenty five. 25. He has given us the Holy Spirit to help us through our walk, Ephesians 1, 13. He has promised to give us grace for everything that we could possibly need. John 10.10 He has promised to give us joy in the process of walking through this life. He has promised to give us strength. Those who wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. Isaiah chapter 40 He has promised in John 16.13 to give us guidance. In Isaiah 41 to come and give us help. He has promised in John 14, 26 to instruct us in the way that we should go. He has promised us in Ephesians 1, 17 that when we look to him, he will most certainly give us wisdom. In John 14, 1 through 3, he promises that one day all these promises will culminate by us having a place with him in heaven. And 1 Timothy 4, 8 says that if we have been faithful, there will be eternal reward that waits for us there as well. These are the precious and magnificent promises. 
That's the nature of his promise. These are these wonderful things that God has promised to bestow upon us. And it is those promises that serve as our motivation for loving him in return and taking the steps that we need to in our own daily life. That's the nature of it. What are the value of these promises? Well, look at the words that he uses there to describe these promises. He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. That word precious, it's most often used to describe precious stones. In Revelation 21.19, that word is used to talk about the foundation stones of heaven. It says, they are adorned with every kind of precious stone. Jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, don't know what that is, need to talk to a jeweler, jacinth, amethyst, pearls, pure gold. What's his point? That they are of exceedingly mind-blowing, exceeding great value. They're very, very highly prized because they are scarce. They're not things that you stumble upon every single day. That's what makes them precious. They're also magnificent. The word that Peter uses there, it's an interesting little word. It's the word megos, which in Greek means, you translate it into English, and it means mega, right? Very complicated translation work there. Megos means great ones. They're large. They're very important right? It's something, it can actually refer to volume, cranked up to full volume, encompassing the biggest possible space. My daughter Lizzie and I, we have this thing, she's just at the age where she's starting to talk pretty well, you know, and so her vocabulary is expanding really rapidly, and we have this thing where we go back and forth to try to figure out who loves who more, right? And so she's racking her little brain to figure out which word best describes how I can love you more than you told me you love me. So I'll say, I love you crazy much. And I thought, well, that's good enough. I got her, right? Crazy much. She comes back with, I love you mega much. (laughs) I thought, you know what? I can't beat it. You win this round. But that's the idea. This, This mega heart-encompassing, all-encompassing, the biggest possible word that you could possibly imagine. In her little brain, that's the biggest word she could come up with. Mega. Mega much. That's the idea here behind this word in this text. They are gargantuan. It's the biggest thing you could possibly imagine where it seems to loom up over top of you and it's just huge. It fills every space in your vision. These promises, they are valuable and precious, and they are huge and magnificent, as loud and as big as you could possibly imagine something to be. They're not just valuable, they're not just available, but they're necessary. Look at what he says there. These promises were granted to us, and there's a so that. Why are these promises granted to us? So that by them you may become something that you are not now. See, these promises, they play a key role in your transformation. They're not just randomly slapped in here in this verse. They're connected. The agency of change in your life are the promises that God has made. Without these promises, you are a sitting duck. You are stuck. You can't get anywhere. But it's the promises of God that enable change, and it's that effect that makes them precious, that makes them magnificent, to us. I mean, just imagine for a moment a world in which you knew the truth of God, but were not enabled to move towards Him. 
How miserable would that be? And yet here we're told that you've been given a truckload of promises to motivate you to barrel down that hill towards him. And so when you feel stuck, remember that God has not only brought to you the knowledge of Jesus Christ, thereby providing you with everything you need for life and godliness, but he's also handed you now an arsenal full of promises that are precious and magnificent to use in your daily struggle. Well, what's the point of all of this? Well, this is the fourth thing that we need to be reminded of, that we must recognize. Not just God's power and provision and promises, but we must also recognize His purposes. Like, what, what's the end? What's the point? Why are we supposed to be leveraging all this divine power in order to grow? Well, the end of verse 4, he says, so that by these promises you may become what? What's the point? Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That's the point. That's the divine purpose. So that you would be made like Christ, and as much as you're made like him, you would diametrically be made not like the world. Conformity to God and escape from corruption. Ephesians 4.13 tells us that conformity to God is the point of sanctification, that you'd end up looking like Christ. Colossians 1.28 tells us that the aim of ministry is to be able to present every person having been made complete in Christ. You see, the result of being brought into conformity to Christ is that you are now caught up, and I don't want you to miss this, you're caught up into the nature of God himself as a partaker of his excellence and his glory. Look at that. So that you may become partakers of what? Of the divine nature. What is the divine nature and how has it been described to us in this passage? Well, it's been called precious, magnificent, glorious, and perfect. That's the divine nature, and that's the nature into which, as you're conformed to be like Christ, you are now caught up into and made like. You are now able to not just know about it through the person of Christ. Through Him, you're able to actually experience it. See, when you begin to partake in the glory and goodness of God, that is your pathway. That is your motivation to escaping from corruption. And after having seen all of his goodness, all of his glory, all of his perfection, when you have seen the person of Christ as having been revealed not just through your experience, but through the pages of this book, when you understand the promises that he has made to you, why in the world would you want to have anything to do with the corruption that is in the world by lust? That's his point. That word corruption there... It's a word that means to rot or to decompose, right? It stinks. It's awful. It's nasty to look at, nasty to smell, nasty to touch. It is something that is not necessary, should be cut off, scrubbed down, and thrown away. That's corruption. And you compare that corruption that is in the world by our driving desires and fleshly lust with the glory, the excellence, the precious value, the magnificence. And you say, would you rather experience the nature of God driven by his glory 
Or would you rather experience the corruption of the world driven by your own lust? And it's the answer to that question that is the purpose of sanctification. Because it brings you down to the end of yourself and shows you that you are broken, incapable, that you are a sinner. That if left to you, you would be filled with corruption that is in the world by what? That last part is so important. Because it's saying to us, if you were left to your own devices, you would bear the fruit of lust, which is corruption. And yet, you're not left to your own devices. You are filled with the power of God who has provided the person of Christ and fulfilled every single promise so that you may understand his purpose of partaking in his nature alongside not only his son, but himself as well. That's the table that I want to be at. See, the power of God has been protected for you and it's been unleashed to revolutionize you into becoming more like Christ. And the point of these first couple of verses here is simply to tell us this, that in order for your sanctification to progress, it starts by you getting back down to the foundation and you understanding and recognizing that this is not up to you to just simply bootstrap your way up and make it happen. This is dependent upon the nature and role of God himself in causing you to grow. You cannot hope to begin the doing, which we'll look at next time in the following verses, until you first mastered the knowing. So, to review, what must we now know? That the power of God is available to transform us. The provision of God to know Christ through the pages of Scripture is available to us. The promises of God that motivate us down the right path are resident within us, and the purposes of God in catching us up to Himself are obvious. It's only after we've grasped these great truths about what God does in our growth that we can begin to turn and look at what our part in that process must be. So let's think about these things this week before we jump back in to our more proactive part next week. Let's close in prayer together. Father, we do thank you for your word and the pathway that it is for us to recognize the way back to you. Father, we are broken sinners who have been corrupted by the value of our own lusts, and yet we see you, the grandeur and greatness of who you are, and we desire the grace and peace and knowledge of Christ that they, those things would be multiplied within us. We understand that that begins by your work in us, so may we surrender ourselves to that even this week, and may we pursue the knowledge of Christ. May we pursue the beauty of the promises that have been made to us, and may they become our motivation in every way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.